kind of easy to be real courageous and be like, I can take care of myself. I don't need the government to help me. Well, that's great because you have clean water. The government's done. The government has spent trillions providing you with clean water, clean streets and everything else. So you don't get these diseases. You can act all macho. Welcome to the From Quarantine podcast, a weekly dose of dry humor from two Americans living in the heart of Europe. Hosted by January Newbanks and Tassie Gibson. Hello, everyone. Tonight we have with us our illustrious historical expert, Dan Schmidt. Hi, Dan. How are you tonight? Hey, ladies. How you doing? I'm, I'm great. Yeah. Yay! Tassie, how are you? Again, I am great, fine, <laughs> great, fine. <laughs> All the adjectives. Yeah. So tonight we're going to talk a little bit about smallpox, which is our second pandemic that we're covering in this series, um, which is really gross. If I can just give you a little um, preview to Daniel's notes. Uh, but interesting. Hey, so this might not be the one to have lunch with. <laughs> yeah. Heads up. This go. might have some, some but, content. But, but, but it does end on a positive note. We're going yeah, yeah. to start off and then positive note, meaning this is the only large scale disease we've managed to wipe off the face of the planet. So there is yeah. hope. There is hope. And it's really fascinating because of that, like how we were able to do that as a species. Yeah. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'll let you get started, Dan. Cool. Tell us a little bit about the what it, smallpox is and what are the symptoms? Okay, or, so what um, were smallpox, the symptoms? Is, is, <laughs> smallpox has been known as the angel of death and I like to think of this story as something that there, there was an angel of death that unlike the black death which appeared in two or three really big waves this is something that lived with uh, people in Europe and the Americas for off and on for like 500 years it never really went away there were spikes but it's less of an event and more of an era um, mm -hmm. But when you think about smallpox, just always keep in mind that we managed to, as human beings, pull together and kill the angel of death. I just like that, that kind of idea. That is a nice uh, so, smallpox. It is a nice image, yeah. Uh, smallpox, uh, the word uh, polka is an Anglo Saxon word which means a pouch or a blister. So, when you think of anything that has the word pock or pox in it, um, that, that refers to the blisters themselves. The reason it's called smallpox there was already something called the great pox and that was syphilis and we're going to do a whole episode on syphilis so inappropriately the one that is actually a much more virulent killer got the name smallpox and the great pox was already taken by syphilis and i i always love the study of syphilis because syphilis you know generally affects men more than women um it's a you know it's a sexually transmitted disease so of course when men encounter syphilis they're just like this must be the worst thing ever because it makes certain parts <laughs> of my body fall off um, but the intensity which researchers and doctors write about syphilis is inordinately intense. <laughs> and so they give that the name of great pox and smallpox gets the smaller name. Um, but you see this word pox, uh, pox everywhere and the Germans refer to it as kinderpocken, which denotes something unique about this disease, which that at times and places you're talking about 90% young. It is an angel of death, particularly aimed at the young. It affects everybody, it kills everyone. But the death rate, 80-90% uh, below the age of five. Mm. Um, so there's two types, major types of this virus, and there's lots of things that make it really interesting. So what we're talking about is a variola minor, major. So variola minor is a type of kind of a pox infection. It's a small pox that you get, that you recover from, you get a very mild flu-like symptoms, maybe some pox marks, but not very much. Um, and but what we're going to be talking about is variola major so it's the smallpox that leads to uh rampant pock marks all over your body inside your body the collapse of the circulatory system and it's it's highly virulent and mm -hmm. ironically towards the what happened in the united states especially is that variola major uh got wiped out by variola minor so kind of naturally 
the minor, which it, it imbues you with uh, immunity, took over and won out. So one disease kind of pushed the other disease out. And luckily, it was the one that, that actually doesn't kill you. So hmm. variola major is um, what we'll be talking about. The death rate's about 30%, but it can be much higher or much lower. Uh, very easily transmittable, not so much um, airborne, but through like, so if you coughed into somebody's face, <laughs> please don't do that. No. Um, you, you could pass it, but through touch, through uh, fluids, through food, through materials, it's very, very easy to pass on to someone, but you have to be interacting with somebody. Um, another thing about this is there are a lot of poxes, we've heard of chicken pox, and those are all very promiscuous diseases. They float from uh, animals to humans, back to animals, cow pox, goes into cows, obviously, but also horses and dogs and chickens. We are the only vector for transmission for smallpox. Only oh, humans, that's, and that's it. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, whereas Black Death, Black Death can, has lots of different vectors in the terms of gerbils and rats and different things like that. And they can kind of lay low in the ground and kind of survive incognito. Um, if the reason why we can so confidently say that smallpox is gone is because we don't have any vectors for transmission anymore because we're the only vectors. So um, it kills you. What did you say? The dirty humans. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> so um, it, it really kills you through uh, uh, toxemia is the kind of medical, but it causes, it's, a, it's an RNA disease that spreads and makes lots of copies of itself to make it really simple. And you get organ failure because your circulatory system, and I'm very, very minute level, those tiny little blood vessels that deliver the blood back and forth kind of collapse. So you almost kind of have an internal bleeding situation, but that is compounded by the fact that it's really hard to breathe because you've got, imagine having um, pustules or poxes or blisters in the inside of your throat, in your nose, in your esophagus, like just everywhere that you need to ingest food, oxygen, water. I so remember that when I was a kid, you. that was the, if you got chicken pox, the worst thing. Like parents were so afraid for you to get it inside of your mouth. So I can only imagine yeah. like that, the fear with chicken pox. And if this is like a thousand times worse, wow. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, but what else can you expect? So let's say you got variola major. What would you expect? Um, you could expect to be a carrier for about 20 to 24 days. So you got the pre-symptoms. Symptoms will start to show up within a couple of days, but once you get it, you're automatically a vector for transmission. Uh, active symptoms would probably be about 10 to 15 days. And then after those go away, you're still contagious. But you've got uh, violent shivers where your nervous system kind of reacts to it. Uh, you've got uh, fever, obviously. Uh, the first half of you have fever, then that kind of goes away and everything else stays. Sharp pain in your back. And then you've got these blisters which start to fill up with fluid and then erupt. And in a way, that's how it's ensuring its lifespan is continuing. It's, it, you know, that's its reproductive method is to create pus and have them be out of your body and if it bumps into someone they're going to get covered in, in the pus and Yay. ensure the, the virus <laughs> Yay. <Insurance> continues. <laughs> so um but you know you've got again the swollen tongue the internal bleeding lots of pain and then just something that no other disease has in this sort of way which is just a repugnant odor that will emanate from you that you know, when people in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century talk about odors that are repugnant, it's got to be nasty. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's gotta be. Yeah. These are people who lived in filth and lived with just toxic fumes everywhere. So when they say that stuff is nasty, it's, it's got to be on a level we can't even comprehend. So, um, but, but I think the, um, the remaining kind of problem with smallpox is that if you got it and if you survived, you got anywhere from a minor pockmarking to looking like the surface of the moon. And um, yeah. especially for women whose beauty, you know, beauty for a woman was, if you were born ugly or disfigured, you never got married, getting employment would be out of kind of the public eye. Um, this disease would wreck you. And, and there's even, you know, discussions where people wrote about surviving smallpox yay but looking into a mirror reflective surface and not even recognizing themselves uh, mm. like they're wearing a mask of rough rocks 
and with a twisted face and knowing that their entire life is is changed and um yeah so it, it surviving it was possible in fact more probable but being disfigured by it and we have people like um, you know, Elizabeth the first Queen of England being disfigured by it, and that's why she wore so much white makeup, mm. or more than at the time, which was full of lead, of course. And yeah. Uh, yeah. And so. I think that we mentioned it before. I think we were talking about it, but also it for servants, it actually worked in their favor to have pock marks because um, it was easier to get employed in a bigger home because they didn't want cooks or nannies or anyone in the house that hadn't had smallpox. And actually that if you could prove that you had had it, um, it was sometimes actually a benefit. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You said that the other weekend, it was, I'd never heard that before. Um, I've learned since that um, being a, if you were a young woman and got it and you had a little bit of scarring maybe in a certain part of your body but you remained pretty that was even better because you'd be marrying oh. a pretty girl who would stay pretty and wouldn't get disfigured five years into your marriage oh. um, <laughs> um, there's this whole victorian georgian issue of beauty you know and smallpox which runs directly converse to that and it plays on you know societal fears about you are as good as you know your outward appearance mm. and um you know you kind of have this romantic age which praises beauty but then you have a disease that strips beauty from people and uh so yeah no no effective treatments whatsoever once you get it you got to just pass through the flames um sometimes getting it as a kid like i said was good because then you're kind of you, you well you don't have to worry about smallpox anymore um because you've survived it and you get immunity but uh we are talking on average uh in in you know europe um we're talking a quarter of a million deaths a year um in the 20th century alone we're thinking 300 million and that's in the last hundred years so mm -hmm. um that's yeah. so crazy yeah, so calling it the angel of death is not hyperbole. It really was. Uh, there were a couple other angels of death in competition. We have measles, which works really interestingly alongside smallpox. Uh, it's kind of like a one-two punch. But measles, cholera, and then probably something that might even be more deadly, which is tuberculosis. Uh, but smallpox, because of how long it's been affecting and, and how easy it is to spread, is really uh, an angel of death. Hmm. Wow. So all that's going on. And how was that impacting um, cultures, countries, communities? What was happening in around the world? Okay, so um, smallpox is interesting. We, we start to see maybe in 400 AD it really being clearly identified, but we've got some evidence that it was present in the ancient world. So if you listen to the Black Death episode, we, you know, we have the, uh, the plague of Justinian, which is Yersinia pestis, which is Black Death. But we do, we, it's hard to confirm whether it's smallpox or not is what I'm trying to say. But we do have some eras where it kind of intersects with uh, turning points in history. So we do have Ramses the Fifth, the Egyptian mummy that when we unwrapped him and did our stuff, you can clearly see the pockmarks effects on his leathered skin. Uh, mm -hmm. We've got Hittite clay tablets, and the Hittites actually accused, we don't know if this is true, but they accused the Egyptians of using smallpox for biological warfare, kind of like smallpox blankets uh, wow. against the American. Yeah, we, we don't know if that's true. We don't even know if it was smallpox. We just suspect that it was. Mm -hmm. um, the plague of Athens, which kind of, in a sense, crushed Athenian civilization and allowed the Spartans to win the Peloponnesian War and killed Pericles. Um, it could have been one of 30 different plagues, we don't know, but there's strong evidence that it might have been smallpox. And if you think about where the plague of Athens, what that led to and the rise of Alexander the Great and the spread of Greek culture, that, that all connects somehow to that. Um, but what there was we're sure about- Not to time travel, Dan, that statement right there would be it. It could have been any one <laughs> of 30 different plagues. <laughs> <laughs> Remember- Remember that historians need to pay their mortgages and bills. So <laughs> history is one of those weird topics where, you know, you could come along and say something of fact, like Hitler was bad, 
or that, you know, um, the Kitty Hawk was the first plane to take flight. And somebody will argue against it, partly because they believe it, but partly because they have, um, you know, they have bills to pay. <laughs> so, yeah, his, his, historical debates are very interesting, but also I'm like, did you really need to argue that or did you really just have alimony payments to make? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The last shout out for an older one I want to just talk about is the uh, Antonine Plague. So this is uh, 165 to 180 AD. So the Roman Empire is still kind of at its height, uh, maybe getting a little bit weaker, but still strong. They still have uh, 150,000 legionaries dominating Europe and so on. And this plague breaks out and it kills an emperor. And then 11 years later, he kills another emperor, Marcus Aurelius. You may have heard of him. He's, he's quite famous. Um, but we're talking 60, 60 to 70 million people, and it probably is smallpox. And if you think about where the Roman Empire is at at this time, it's going to fall apart in the next 150 years. And some historians and, and microbiologists and people who kind of fuse the two uh, subjects are looking at, did this disease destroy enough legions, kill enough uh, farmers who made the crops, and enough taxpayers that basically it led to a cascading effect that would have really, really affected the Roman Empire. Mm. Um, so it's it's always been, uh, you know, did they lose their way? Was it Christianity? Was it a lack of culture? Was it barbarians? And now there's this new idea, which is, well, all that stuff doesn't really hold the empire to shreds unless there's a climatic event that shakes it to its core. And they're thinking, if you step back a couple generations and look at the Antonine Plague, maybe the Roman Empire lasts another couple hundred years without it. Mm. Um, there and there is a connection between the rise of Christianity within the Roman Empire and the Roman Empire becomes Christian and, and connected to the Antonine Plague. So um, all that to say in the ancient world, smallpox probably shows its face a couple of different times according to the records that we have. Um, but let's move on to the modern world. Do you guys want to make any comments or? Do, do we have like any idea of like the origins of the disease. I mean, like since it didn't come from animals, it's not zoological. Um, like, do we have any idea of like, you know, is it just like a bacteria that showed up that turned into a virus? Like what, or what kind of like, do we have any ideas of like the origins? Yeah, we, we don't, we just know that there are other pox like uh, viruses. This one's very unique. And then we don't have really great records. I mean, the real first time we can actually say um, that, that someone clearly identified what we would call today as variola major or smallpox is in 400 AD, which is not that long ago, kind of history-wise. And that was, mm -hmm. a, um, that was a Persian physician who detailed it enough that we're like, boom, that's it. That's not measles. Um, the problem is that smallpox looks like a lot of other diseases and a lot of yeah. other diseases look like smallpox symptoms. Even today, if you got smallpox, someone probably wouldn't identify it until you were really far along. And so it's, it's problematic. Um, but yeah, I don't, I, from what I looked at, I don't know where it came from. We just start to really see it from about four or 500 onwards. And then it escalates by the 15th century. It becomes a worldwide problem of, of Titanic proportions. Hmm. Um, and then lots of written records after that. Yeah. Fascinating. So, um, in the modern world, it segues really nice. I mean, we have a lot of, a few things happening before what we consider to be the modern era. Modern era starts about 500 years ago. Um, in the sense there was an outbreak in Japan that killed probably about one third of Japan in two years. So wow. that's uh, 735 to 737. And, um, and then we have uh, another interesting f thing that I never knew about is that in places like India and in places like China and, and uh, not necessarily like main China, but different subgroups of Chinese, India and South America and, Af and West Africa, we have smallpox gods um, that people begin to worship and sacrifice to just in the attempt to spare them. Yeah. And this becomes a problem in the 1970s when the WHO shows up with their vaccination kits and says, hey, let's give you immunity to this angel of death. And, and some, in, some uh, tri tribal groups, villages in India refuse it because they don't want to offend this God. So they continue to 
you know, to operate in old ways and they have to over, they have to come up with a propaganda campaign to overcome the, um, that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, the appreciation of the gods because the, it's so dear and it's such a, you know, it's such a frightening reality for them. So, yeah. But, um, so the stats in Europe are really interesting. So we're talking about kind of start around the 1500s now. So uh, catching it, you're talking about maybe one in three. In some places, 80% of the people would get it, but one out of every three people would catch variola major in an intense way and, and dying would be about, like I said, 20%, one in five. Uh, the stats for mankind would be one in 12 would be, would, would be affected by it. Um, um, so it's 200,000 a year. Sometimes there was a 25 year period in the 18th century where 15 million people died. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, can't in even 18th century Russia. Yeah. I mean, again, every, with these numbers these big, it's almost useless to recite them. Yeah. Because you get a wow factor and then you're just kind of in shock. Um, but I do yeah. try to think about you know, just take that factor right there, 15 million people died. From that, I mean, every one of those people is a, is a child, a mother, a father, and it connects to, you know, 50 other people. Yeah, I was just um, thinking about, I mean, like the, the, um, the empty synagogues and like the empty Jewish quarters that we have in, in Europe because of the Holocaust. Um, and that was 6 million people. So yeah. Like if you're thinking about like entire populations being affected by this and 15 million people dying, that's an incredible amount yeah. of people. It is. And, and you know, it's, it's even creepier when you think about how people's attitudes and societal values begin to change as a result of a disease that is so routine that, you know, one out of every, uh, uh, every seventh child that was born in Russia died basically within the first couple of years. Mm. That, so that, with that stat, if you take that, um, but people begin to see it as kind of a natural, so their smoke screen, or not their smoke screen, their defense mechanism was to see it as a natural uh, birth control or a control on family size. So if a kid dies, it's not a case for mourning. It's a case for the fact that this is just kind of how nature is dealing with large family sizes because we don't have birth control. Mm. And in some households, you weren't, a true descendant of the family until you had passed through the smallpox flames. So imagine you've got your father and all your brothers and three of them have survived smallpox and you haven't, well, you're not really a legitimate heir because wow. there's so much that's up. Yeah. So, you know, zero liability, think, I guess at that point, like you might not make it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So under tens, under 10 years old will be 80 to 98% of smallpox deaths in Europe. So it, it was a angel of death, particularly for children. Um, but we have um, lots of kings and king, kings and queens dying. We have um, five reigning monarchs in the 18th century. They get taken away by this. Uh, so King Louis I of Spain, uh, Peter II, the Tsar of Russia, a princess in Monaco, a king of France. Uh, it's Louis XV. So uh, a very high death toll for not just the children, but also monarchs as well. Mm -hmm. um yeah so um but i did want to bring something up that kind of runs counter so i like i like bringing up points and then a counterpoint um so king george the third um had two children who got um who got basically smallpox and died so the first one was in 1780 named alfred and uh you know as a king or a queen you're not supposed to mourn i just said that people didn't consider the kids to be true heirs well alfred got it and didn't mourn, but his wife, Charlotte, um, um, sorry, Alfred got it. Uh, the King George III, this is, by the way, crazy King George uh, during the, the American Revolution. Yeah, crazy. Mm -hmm. Crazy. Um, <laughs> so son Alfred dies, and his wife, Charlotte, mourns to the point where her servant wrote it down and said this woman is irreconcilable. So I find mm -hmm. that interesting um, by the way, they had 14 kids. <laughs> yeah. So it isn't just like, this is my only heir. This is a kid whose life was snatched away. And you have a monarch, um, you know, crying crocodile tears. And then their next son, Octavius, uh, died. And King George is quoted as saying, there will be no heaven for me if Octavius is not there. Wow. So when I say 
you know, that families expected their children to die or they didn't name them until the age of two or there was a legitimate heir. Part of me thinks that that's all absolutely hogwash and that actually yeah. every single death was felt. That's what I was thinking when you were saying it because like um, I've heard the same, you know, sort of thing said about uh, ancient Rome and ancient Greece, but there's clear evidence that people mourn their children and put up, um, tombstones and buried yeah. their favorite dolls with them so i think maybe and i've heard this said um about the ancient world that it's less that they didn't mourn and more that it was a rite of passage your parents lost children your neighbors lost children like you mm -hmm. all were losing your children but it doesn't lessen the pain exactly yeah. exactly so um so yeah, I'd like to read you guys a quote because this really struck me as being interesting. Uh, this is from um, a book called The History of England and the Ascension of James II. The quote is, the havoc of the plague, he's talking about the Black Death, had been far more rapid, but the plague had visited our shores only once or twice within living memory. And the smallpox was always present, filling the churchyards with corpses, tormenting with constant fears all whom it had not been stricken leaving on those whose lives it spared the hideous traces of its power, turning the babe into a changeling at which the mother shuddered and making the eyes and cheeks of the betrothed maiden objects of horror to the lover. Hmm. So I think that summarizes the, the latent fear of the disfigurement, the, you know, turning a baby into a changeling. <laughs> like, yeah. Wow. yeah, that's strong so, language, yes. <laughs> so, it ravaged Europe, um, and um, there were similar effects uh, with the Americas. I, I think we're going to do a whole episode on smallpox and measles with Native Americans, but um, you, can, you can translate the numbers over to North America with the settlements pretty equally. Uh, they do get, uh, America does receive the knowledge of inoculation um, from a West African slave because they practiced it as well. And you have George Washington inoculating his troops. And so there is an, a quick adoption of some preventative measures. Uh, but Abraham Lincoln got it. Most people don't know that mm. and survived. Oh. Um, but I think it was a, a milder case. So it kind of explains his face, though, right? <laughs> yeah, that's why, that's why everyone wore a beard back then, because they were all looking like uh, they all had moon faces. Yeah. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but the last thing I want to mention just kind of globally is the, the Aztecs in, in South America. And um, the estimates there are 20 million or 90% in about 60 years. Um, wow. So it was an African slave who traveled with the conquistadors. This wasn't biological warfare. This was just an unfortunate confluence of empire, opportunism, and um, a very European-esque disease translating across the world, and you have an entire mighty empire brought to its knees um, by one infected vector encountering them. So, um, the, you know, the reason why South America speaks Spanish has a lot more to do with smallpox than anything else. Um, yeah, wow. the death toll is, is incalculable. So, I need a stiff drink, how about you? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a lot. Kind of um, light at the end of the tunnel, right, Dan? Oh, yeah. Well, let's talk about Jenner. And you guys did a, a great episode. I encourage you to uh, listen to it because you guys covered inoculation, what that is, very well. I will do just a minute summary, and you guys can cut in with anything you want to mention that I have forgotten or I don't even know. But um, inoculation is putting the pus of a smallpox victim into you which what should happen nine, about 97% of the time should be you get a minor case of smallpox and then you recover and then you are immune for about seven to 10 years, sometimes forever, but you're basically, you're home free. Um, and this was spread in a lot of different ways, um, but, um, but it, was, it was good. It was a huge step forward and it allowed us to, for the first time to prevent a disease, but, it still had a 3% death rate and it's still, let's say, so let's say you get inoculated. Someone shoves a bunch of smallpox pus into your arm with like a long kind of knife or something like that. You get mildly ill, but what are you gonna do? 
Well, you're going to go to your job that day. You're going to go out and live your normal life because you're not bed bound. You're not super ill and you're going to be spreading smallpox to everyone you come in contact with. Mm. So sometimes even though I have a mild case of the smallpox, I could give you a full blown weapons grade version of that disease. And then all of a sudden you have an outbreak sometimes would happen. Um, it was also expensive and it grew into an industry. So I like to think of it as inoculators.com. Um, you know, like most medicine, it becomes its own industry. And then if you're not in a country which provides you free healthcare, um, then you have to pay for it. So right. there, there needed to be a solution. It wasn't good enough, this idea of inoculation. So um, I want to step back to a man that I want to give a shout out to. This is, I got two man crushes this episode. Um, <laughs> one is called John Hunter. Um, there's a brilliant book about him called The Knife Man that will make you fall in love with him as a man of science. And if you guys, I don't know, I'd love to do an episode on him. Um, yeah, there's giants involved. There's all sorts of stuff. It's crazy. But he, um, John Hunter was a man who was probably one of the greatest men of science you probably never heard of. He wasn't exactly part of the Royal Society. But he, um, he, one of his trainees was Edward Jenner, and he impressed upon him. One of his quotes is, do not think, try, be patient, be accurate. Now, that may sound counterintuitive when he, John Hunter told Edward Jenner to don't think, but remember that the entire history of mankind has been built upon, or a lot of it has been built upon logic, and logic does not work when it applies to the design of the human body or the evolution of the human body. Um, you know, Aristotle was logical, uh, Hippocrates was logical, and these men and a lot of, you know, a lot of philosophers are very, very logical. If this, then this means, and they're, a lot of them are wrong on almost everything. So Hunter's idea was reject pure, like solving problems through logic and test, test, test. What they were saying is get a hypothesis, test the hell out of it, and then see what you can discover. Only trust. The, the birth of the scientific, scientific method. Yeah. That's exactly what yeah. I was going to say. Yeah, so I, I think more if he is a product of kind of the scientific revolution, but to a really, really high degree. And I mean, he was, Hunter was, the, what makes Hunter unusual? In this, uh, there's a lot of things, but he was an iconoclast. And he even theorized the theory of evolution before um, Darwin even kind of came out with it. He speculated on it. He, he wasn't bound by anything. He just didn't give an F. He, he kind of thought, everything he thought it was based upon his own observation and scientific inquiry. So, but that leads us to Mr. Edward Jenner. So Edward Jenner is a Gloucestershire doctor, a country doctor, a country bumpkin, and um, which they would hold against him for his entire life. Probably never traveled more than 150 miles from his home, which I can drive to in about two hours from here. Amazing. Um, yeah, he's just an average dude, but I, I, Edward Jenner is, is I, I can't talk about him without my heart like fluttering a bit. He's <laughs> amazingly beaming, and I'll, I'll get into why in a second. But he begins hearing rumors that, um, that women who are milkmaids do not get smallpox, um, and so he goes to investigate, and he just, you know, he, he researches, he interviews, he does kind of the scientific method and his own investigation. And he starts to think that maybe the disease that they get, which is called cowpox, which will give minor blisters on your hand that'll make you feel poorly. Um, maybe that grants an immunity to this disease, which is, a, by the way, which is a crazy thought, even though it's true. The fact that an animal disease can make you superhuman to a virulent human disease that snatches, you know, hundreds of thousands of deaths across Europe a year. So one day, a woman by the name of, is it Sally? I forgot her last name, but I know the name of the cow. <laughs> Sally, if you're listening from the grave, I'm sorry. Much more I mean, the cow is really the star of the show, though. Yeah. It is. I mean, Sally, you were producing smallpox out of your udders, so, or cowpox out of your udders, so yeah. So Blossom the cow, lucky little Blossom, who Edward Jenner would dote on the rest of his life. I think he bought it and like kept it and like, you know, hung out with it all day. Uh, Blossom the cow gets a, enough of a case of cowpox that um, Edward Jenner, uh, Sally brings Blossom to Edward and Edward decides to try an experiment. Now it is kind of dodgy because he is sticking cowpox into a boy and then he's gonna give the boy um, 
smallpox. The boy's name is uh, James Phipps. So he sticks cowpox in him. He develops a minor case of cowpox. And then Edward Jenner hits him with a full dose of smallpox. And for the first time in human history, we have found a safe and reliable way to be immune from the angel of death. Well, you say the first time in history, Dan, but let's back up. There were some women that were in on this show. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. Yes, they had all found out. And yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> it was the first time a man found out. It was the first out. time a man did it. <laughs> that's true. I take it back. I stand, I stand absolutely corrected. Because as we said, um, Lady, uh, uh, Lady Mary, um, oh, God. Motley, Wor- <laughs> Montague, Montague. 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 Yes. <laughs> she has such a long name. It takes such a long time for my brain to find it. Um, because she had been hearing these rumors out in um, modern day Turkey when she was. Uh, she, yeah, she's in Constantinople. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, and she had been doing this with her children, and that was kind of like what you were talking about the rumors going around. So they there was some consciousness. Yes. Yes, you could make yourself um, immune with uh, inoculations. So putting smallpox in a fresh victim would do that, but it was so dangerous that yeah, Jenner kind of gives the the two point version. But yes, you're right mm-hmm. about that. Um, but the reason I love Jenner is this character. So you, imagine you're Jenner and you discover this and you know that you are sitting on a gold mine. You are sitting on something that will change human history forever. Um, and that it's safe, it's reliable. And he immediately says, I'm not going to exploit this. I, he refuses to patent it. There are people around him who are begging them, patent this, make this the next thing and then sell it for cheap. And for the sake of the poor, and for the sake of getting this out there as much, as much as possible, he refuses to patent it and works tirelessly to petition Parliament to make this something that is, is uh, standard and to fund his efforts to give this away for free. Um, you know, I'm just, I'm just thinking of a company coming up with a real cure for cancer and then just refusing to patent it, mm. knowing that everyone's going to take it. And here's, here's what else comes with a patent. If you patent it, you have control over who uses it and how they use it. If you choose not to patent it, everyone goes out and uses it in their own way and whatever they mess up comes back on you. Mm-hmm. And he knows this and yet he decides to say, exploit my work, exploit my discovery. And he works tirelessly for the poor um, and encounters a lot of opposition. So that's why I really like Jenner. Um, he works as a scientist to test this smallpox in a number of other different um, guinea pigs. He um, pays a lot of money for illustrations to be drawn, engravings and watercolors to be made um, at great cost to to send to Parliament to convince them that this is something that they need to look at. And they do something that they really don't do. Um, In 1802, they give him 10 grand. In 1806, they give him 20 grand, um, which is the equivalent to, I don't have the actual figures, but it's it's a mountain of money. And this is at a time where the government of Britain does not give money to public health measures. They have a laissez-faire, a hands-off attitude towards any of this, and they decide to bestow upon this righteous, righteous man um, a mountain of money to continue his work in giving this, uh, what he ends up calling vaccination, um, because vaca is Latin for cow. So there you go, hashtag blossom. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so... And because he is so unusual, and everyone recognizes this, they recognize the fact that this is a man who could have made a lot of money on this, that he's giving this away, he's working tirelessly for no benefit of his own. In fact, he's gonna get a lot of, a lot of blowback from this. His re- he, he ends up, by the time he dies, he gets recognition from all over the planet. Um, we have the, the Emperor of Japan, we have Thomas Jefferson, we have Napoleon thanking him for his efforts while he's still alive which usually doesn't happen, um, especially in the, in the history of medicine is people saying, hey, this probably will work. And then they die alone in jail or crazy. Um, <laughs> that is true. There is. That is true. I mean, have you guys ever heard of Semmelweis, the guy who discovered, um, he discovered that washing your hands stops women dying in childbirth. Yeah, we talked about him mm-hmm. back in our hand washing okay. episode. Yeah, yeah. So soap is the real MVP. He, yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, um, 
So vaccination picks up really, really quickly with a lot of people. Um, Sweden and, um, and, you know, the, the smaller the country, the more direct government intervention, uh, the better the result. Uh, so Sweden basically um, fell from an average of 2,000 deaths a decade, um, fell to an average of 133 by 1821. Um, wow. Berlin, Berlin fell from 5,000 uh, to 555. So we have a dramatic drop in death rates and smallpox from people who begin to roll this out, but it's really, really tough. The government is now, who's gonna pay for this? Who's gonna administer it? How are you gonna quality control it? Um, doctors don't even have in many countries though, a way to get recognized as a real doctor. Like they don't even have exams and certifications. It's a big project and it's in society as we know it is kind of, the nation state is kind of in its infancy still in many places. Mm. Um, yeah, so. But we, we end up with something in England called the Vaccination Act um, that is the first medical service in Britain, and that's a compulsory vaccination in the 1850s. So this has a cascading effect. And when you think about public health, we can actually say with some certainty that the vaccination campaigns and Edward Jenner's work is really the start of something that we think about. The government is, it has a role to play with our health. It's surprising to me that it's so early. I, I wouldn't have expected that. I thought like World War I would have brought more of that. But also, it doesn't surprise me that the UK was at the forefront of that because I think the, I mean, the NHS, the National Healthcare Service, shows that there is something deeply embedded in the British people and taking care of each other's health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think you're right. And um, when we get into the cholera episode, I will draw ex very explicit links between the real breaking point between the laissez-faire attitude, which is we're here to tax you and protect you from foreign invasion. Anything else that happens, if a sinkhole opens up and swallows you in the street, not a problem. <laughs> you know, tuberculosis rips through town if a rat's chewing on your baby. Like none of that's our problem. <laughs> <laughs> can be we only deal with things that we can use guns on. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's exactly. Um, but the I would say yeah the the proto the proto shift in the thinking around what does the government's role in public health rolling out a compulsory vaccination campaign in eight I think it was 1852 it's in my notes somewhere I'll find it in a minute yeah um, and it's a question we're out. still oh, asking what question. I said it's a question we're still asking. Like, as we look at different countries around the world, some have healthcare built into, you know, like citizenship, and others don't. And I think, think you know, what's the government's role in public health is still a question that we're kind of grappling with today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that question or that answer changes, Jan, in in light of pandemics of this virulence. I think uh, with COVID, we're, we're getting an interesting taste of, of what this might look like. And if we have, if we enter a new age, or keep in mind, 18th century, you have the triple threat of measles, smallpox, tuberculosis, and then the occasional cholera outbreak. Um, and so this demand and this cry for we need systems set up where the government can create conditions and pay for conditions that allow these things not to spread as easily mm -hmm. um, is really at a high pitch fever where it's kind of easy to be real courageous and be like, I can take care of myself. I don't need the government to help me. Well, that's great <laughs> because you have clean water. The government's done. The government has spent trillions yeah. money with clean yeah. water, clean streets and everything else. So you don't get these diseases. You can right. Things break down. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so on that note, Dan, I'm sure it was not smooth sailing for Jenner. Like so far you've sung his praises and everything has sounded peachy, but I'm feeling like it wasn't peachy, right? Yeah, it wasn't super. I mean, okay. It's, it's both. It is, it is one of the strange episodes and we see this in the 19th century is discoveries are made. This is actually late 18th century. Uh, 1870, 1896, I think is when he rolls out his first fact, is when he tests James Phipps. Um, but yeah, there is immediate praise from all over the world within 20 years. Um, so much so that he, he, uh, he asked Napoleon for two English sailors back and Napoleon says, how could I refuse Jenna? 
Like he knows him by name and he lets him go because Jenner asked for him back. Like, you know, you have to- <laughs> Like your Napoleon like, accent. <laughs> I know, I know. Sorry. Send your angry emails to January. <laughs> That's still I am, not I am, my name, Dan. Still not my name. <laughs> I am half I'm British now, so I, I hating the French is a national pastime. <laughs> um, so, but there is also uh, opposition. Remember, germ theory doesn't come out until 1861, effectively, and isn't even proved until the 1880s. This is a hundred years before we can discover and be able to prove and identify germs. So coming out and saying, imagine what, he, again, let's, let's return to how weird this is. Hey, everybody, put a cow disease inside of you on purpose. You will get mildly ill and then you'll become magically immune to all, to a, uh, you know, the angel of death, smallpox. How does it work, Jenner? I have no freaking clue. A little bit of insight, not a clue, nothing, because they don't even know about germs. All I know is I've tested this on a load of people it works. I'm giving it away for free. It, sh it sounds like a shyster, you know? Yeah, it does. Um, Snake oil. So anyways, here's some, reasons, here's some reasons for opposition. Number one, he's a country doctor, and he's going up against the medical establishment. It's a David and Goliath struggle. Mm. Um, and again, he's not just like, he's not just a country doctor. Like, you know, he's, it's, it's Gloucestershire. Like, it's not, it, it is the backwood. It's not the backwoods of England, but it's not, it's not London. And he's coming in, and he's going to topple the medical establishment. Uh, number two, he sends his studies to the Royal Society and he gets rejected because he cannot explain it and he cannot reproduce it. Keep in mind, this doesn't apply to other diseases. This is a one-off. Mm. Cowpox provides immunity to smallpox and that's it. Um, and so they reject it the first time and say, no, we need some evidence. He cannot give it because they don't have the framework of an understanding of germs in order to provide it. So um, number three is the reason for uh, opposition is you have these inoculators and they are making a lot of money going around and, and putting smallpox in people. And he's going to put them all out of business because, again, he's giving it away for free. He's Mr. Um, Altruistic. And they, so they launched the Anti-Vaccination Society. And there are some wonderful pictures of anti-gender propaganda showing people turning into cows Sprouting oh horns, wow. throwing udders. They are, um, yeah, you no, never just, change. It's, I mean, it's so fascinating to me that you see the same thing 100 and 200 years later. Same yeah. thing, same, same, yeah. same argument. Yeah. It's fascinating, exactly. And, and you know, these are memes, anti anti gender memes. And they're, they're, you know, and I, and, and I bet, I bet the same, you know, when you confront somebody who, who takes something lightly and makes fun of a, an issue that you, you really take seriously and they say, oh, I was only joking. I bet if you went to these people and said, hey, why are you convincing people to turn into cows? Like, that's really irresponsible. People are dying. They'll be like, oh, it was just a joke. It's like, no, yeah. it wasn't, bro. You, you don't want to lose your money. <laughs> you don't want this country right, doctor right. showing you up. Mm -hmm. so you convince all these poor people that they're going to sprout horns and start shooting milk out of their face. Um, <laughs> so the inoculators, and they've got some money and some force behind them, and they, they're, they're seeing their business coming in. So they're going to go after him and form the Anti-Vaccination Society. Uh, you have some religious, some religious people are like, boom, thank you, God, you gave us a cure or a preventative measure. Other ones are like, it's unnatural to put an animal disease inside of you. Mm. Um, but that's not only a religious settlement. Some people in a non-religious way were like, that's freaking weird. So whenever well, I teach students, I'm always like, it is weird. Like if you offered somebody, you know, a, a mug of monkey AIDS, drink this <laughs> and this will make you immune to AIDS. No, it is that, it, it's bizarre. Like you'd be like, okay. Uh, um, <laughs> Would you, you be like, you okay? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, so you got some religious people banging on against it. You got um, you got some vaccinators going out, and they don't know what they're doing. They're doing it wrong. They're mixing the cowpox and the smallpox up and infecting Ooh. people with straight up smallpox. You got every Johnny Come Lately going out. Some of them, you know, probably with the best intentions of the world, doing 
half measures. No, they're not scientists. I don't know. I mean, you've got a lot of moving components. And how many small little outbreaks does it take from a vaccinator, generous people, does it take for you to say, this doesn't work? One, right. two, three. And you've got tens of thousands of people across Europe doing this. There's going to be some mistakes. And just like today, you say, aha, look at that guy. He did it. It didn't work. Your entire thesis is wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and then sometimes, even if you did it 100% correct, the human body is a very complex machine. Sometimes it just didn't take, and it didn't provide. Yeah. Any. I mean, still, um, I mean, still today we have people who are who are vaccinating vaccine resistant, right? So, like, the yeah. vaccines don't work for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Jenner receives a fair amount of opposition, and up until the 1870s, you have uh, certain pockets of Europe and certain actual cities and villages that just do not buy into this um, idea of, of vaccination with cowpox um, and so on. So one, one is the city of Leicester in England and they refuse to, and they have a huge spike in smallpox and people get carried away into the next realm in a large measure. And the government has to go in and uh, give fines out. This is in the 1890s, uh, fines, imprisonment, um, you know, throwing people in jail for not vaccinating is not a new idea. It's not that radical in an age where you have 200,000, a quarter of a million people dying in Europe a year, throwing people in prison sounds like a very moderate response to people who refuse to vaccinate. So, um, and then French Canadians in Montreal, you have one dude go up to Montreal with smallpox and a lot of them refuse vaccination and they get absolutely creamed. So, um, yep, lots of opposition. He stood up to it and people carried on the torch after him and continued to lay down a lot of evidence that this is a very effective system to um, to prevent a, a worldwide killing. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have Jenner. We're in the late 1800s right now. Okay, so smallpox yeah. smallpox is still floating around. Uh, it's doing its thing. How do we get from there to now? Nobody is worried about smallpox except for if it falls into a James Bond villain hand. That's right. <laughs> it's or, a, or a Wuhan bio lab, one of the two. Right. Um, so, so how did we move there? Did, it, did we just knock it out by everyone getting vaccinated? Or in, there a in some cases, yeah. In some communities, I mean, smallpox doesn't officially go away, but in some communities that applied it quick, efficiently and had government money behind it, smallpox became a non-issue. Tuberculosis, cholera, and things like that kind of take its place, but smallpox is defeated in, in some places and continues to thrive in others. But I'll make it kind of real simple. So Jenner does this thing and he proves, Jenner's great contribution was not just defeating uh, smallpox in a practical, easy way and in a free way, uh, but also proving that the human body could be made immune to a disease you know, very simply, um, proving on a large scale, so publishing it, his work, his, his, his propagation of this. Uh, that, of course, leads to the uh, uh, Compulsory Vaccination Act of 1853, I found it. But what that leads to is, is it gets lots of minds firing in one person in particular, the father of germ theory, Louis Pasteur, in 1861, would roll that out and very soon after that, so we go from 1860, we don't know germs exist. Uh, we don't know that they, I'm sorry, that they, they cause disease. He rolls that out in 1861, and by, 18, eight, by 1890, we're now making vaccines. Now, a vaccine is simply a weakened microbe. And, and Pasteur's also, by the way, responsible for that. So it was a guy in, in England called Robert Koch, or Robert Koch. My students love when I talk about him. Um, I'll be working it out. Um, but what the line I want to draw from Jenner in 1796 to Louis Pasteur in 1861 and let's think 1890s, okay, is that when Louis Pasteur finds out how to make a vaccine, how to beat up a, a microbe or bacteria and make a vaccine that will make you immune to a virus, to a disease going forward, he calls it vaccines. He names it vaccines because in honor of Edward Jenner and vaccination. 
Oh, and there's the confusion of the words because Jan and I talked about that on our vocabulary episode, that um, yeah. those words are used interchangeably, but they're not technically interchangeably. Yeah, they're totally different, but yeah, so that, that's the problem with honoring someone. So if you ever name something like, this person inspired me, I'm going to name it after the work, you're condemning uh, 10 generations of people to not understand <laughs> anything. <laughs> so yeah, so just to sum it up for everyone at home who's shaking their heads, um, Louis Pasteur, the father of, of germ theory, creates a vaccine, which we've all had, and he names it after vaccination, which is what Edward Jenner came up with. So, uh, and that led to a whole range. By, by 1900, we have vaccines for anthrax, and then very quickly after that, typhoid and typhus and so on, and it just it grows at an exponential rate. Um, and how do we defeat the disease? Well, like I said in the intro, we still have, again, just let this number rest in your souls a bit, 300 million people in the 20th century, that's 1900 to 1979, are carried away by, by um, smallpox. And, you know, you think of World War I being 20 million dead, World War II, 60, 70 million dead. That doesn't even come close to a third of the people that were whisked away by this disease in, in less than 80 years. Um, this is, yeah, it, it's not so. Um, but through a, um, the WHO in, in late 60s, 67, the World Health Organization got together and said, let's do something really ambitious and absolutely insane. Let's try to eradicate a disease um, through lots of nations pulling together and uh, with you know lots and lots of money, let's just be very clear, the way that these diseases die is two things, international cooperation and oceans of money. They launched a global immunization campaign to wipe out smallpox. Um, and that year in 67, we actually have some statistics, there were 10 to 15 million cases and 2 million deaths just that year. And a decade later, that number is about down to zero. The last death we have in Somalia is in 77, and basically the WH, it, it's, it goes extinct in 70, not, 79, effectively, but then it takes, you know, for the WHO, they want to make it, there's nothing worse than saying, we beat smallpox, and smallpox comes back. Um, <laughs> I think they wait until March 1980, and they publish a um, flyer, pamphlet, whatever. Uh, basically say smallpox is annihilated and we've absolutely eradicated this like consciously. It didn't just die out. It was not dying out. It was virulent. Millions of people were dying a year and we beat it. And that's, that's, that's cause for hope. So um, yeah, that's, that's kind of the smallpox story. So yeah, I think, I feel like I just ran through the annuals of time. <laughs> like my brain is still catching up. I feel like it's somewhere, you know, back in 1492, but it's going to get up here in a minute. Yeah. Um, well, just here's some closing thoughts just from me. If we did this once, we can do it again. Um, the, the eradication of smallpox, a story we've just gone through, and I apologize for all the details. Um, this really, this really is like a, a university course, but what I want this to, 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 it's not even argued, it's not even really arguably, this is the most impressive achievement in medical history, the eradication of this one disease. And, you know, let's say, we, let's say we knocked out a much less virulent disease and trying to think of something else that, that, you know, only kills a few people. That would have been incredible, but we took out one of the big ones. Uh, it's like taking out your enemy's biggest battleship. Like this is a, this was a, a, a huge swing and a huge knockout. Um, so in terms of public health benefit, you know, our lives have all been affected by this in ways that we don't understand. And, and um, so, but keep in mind, you know, with the, the story of Edward Jenner, being 100% correct and fighting for what's good, it does not mean that you're not gonna get opposition or it does mean that you'll probably have opposition. Continue to fight. Um, in fact, the more correct you are, probably the more opposition you'll have because you're going to affect people's livelihoods and you're going to step on their toes, but just stick with it. And, um, but, but like with all new sciences, give it room to breathe. Uh, we're in a very twitchy culture and a very obviously with the 24 hour news cycle. So science will make mistakes, just like Edward Jenner made a lot of mistakes. His methods were not perfect. 
And we learned things after he died that he did wrong. Um, but there's a bit of magic involved in science. There's a bit of mystery involved in it. And sometimes, like he, you can discover something that will change, will be a turning point in human history and not be able to fully explain it. Just like we know, we know a, a, just a few percentage of the viruses that actually exist. And we don't really even know what most viruses do fully. We don't understand that, but yet we can still relate to them, interface with them, deal with them, eradicate them. Um, so trust the science, give it room to breathe. Bad science that turns out bad, you know, unintentionally is not bad science. It's just, it's a, it's a process. So that's what I would just like to leave you with. Yeah, excellent. Dan, thank you so much. I have learned a ton. Oh, thanks, lady. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of From Quarantine. We are live on all platforms, so you can find us on everything from the big guys like Apple Podcasts and Spotify to your favorite podcast apps. You can get updates on our episodes on Instagram. Just search for From Quarantine, and you can find our full show notes on our website, quarantine.cz. We would love it if you would like and share our episodes with your friends. But if you could also take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, that would help us out tremendously. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Live together.